You're listening to KBOO Portland. At KBOO, we accept many kinds of vehicle donations. We accept fuzzy vans, broken cars, zippy scooters, seaworthy boats, well-worn farm equipment, family-sized SUVs, old jet skis, and more. If your vehicle has a clean title, we can take it as a donation. If your vehicle isn't working, we can work with that, too. Call 877-KBOO-123. That's 877-526-6123. Or go to our website, kboo.fm forward slash vehicle. Welcome to the Talking Earth. I'm Dan Raphael, your host once every other month. Uh, tonight I have a variety of excellence for you, starring uh, Carlos Reyes, Igor Brezhnev, and Allison Cobb, with cameos from James Yeary and myself. I'm kicking right in. Uh, longtime Portland resident Carlos Reyes is a poet, teacher, Volkswagen mechanic, and a world traveler. He has had writing residencies in the United States, Ireland, France, and India. He's reading tonight from his most recent book, Lament for Us All. Other titles include Two People in the Night by a River, Flaggy Shore, Poems from West Clare, and the forthcoming Rustling the Mistral and Osage Elegy. You can find out more about him and purchase books at his website, carlos-reyes.poet.com. And here's Carlos. Well, uh... Thanks, Dan, for asking me in on this, um, and thanks to Kabu, I'm I'm uh, I'm happy to say that they're still fighting the good fight, still producing uh, programs and poetry. Uh, I'm going to read mostly things that are written during the pandemic. Uh, however, I do have one brand new poem. It's about two weeks old, maybe. I wrote it in California a couple weeks ago, and it's called Glimpse. Snap in a phone booth at the Greyhound Depot, it echoes black and white Depression era prints by Dorothea Lang. My father's bogarted camel is Casey Jones' headgear bought with dollars earned in a roundhouse beneath locomotives where he scraped mud-like chunks of grease from giant gears, from giant wheel bearings, says it all well almost all. His brand new cap does not belong. My leather aviator jacket out of place. In dim light, his eyes give no sign of his horizons or mine. I'm a depression baby if you didn't know that. <laughs> From a long time ago. I'm going to get now to, uh, to these poems uh, written during the uh, uh, pandemic. And uh, I uh, initially tried to look at my being shuttered in as a kind of, uh, imagined it as a kind of writing residence. So every morning I would get up and, and have a couple of cups of tea, plunk myself down by the computer, start writing, and then have lunch. And that lasted for a while, but I, I still, I got a lot of poems out of it. I certainly got this book, uh, Lament for All of Us, out of it. And uh, I guess it turns out that uh, Unbeknownst to me, that Dan and I are, have the same publisher, 
in India, and I was pleased to hear that. Uh, and another person in Portland who, who's also, so we're kind of in a, 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 a coterie here. Um, uh, people who teach writing talk about prompts, and it, it's not necessarily one of my, uh, uh, in my vocabulary, but I couldn't hardly resist this um, called a pandemic prompt. On this, another August pandemic morning, my cloth mask is covered with writing. As I draw it close, the only legible line comes into focus. This island has no port. And uh, thinking about uh, during this uh, uh, pandemic, I thought of a time in the 1930s when I was, um, we were quarantined. And there's different kinds of quarantine, I guess, but quarantine and none the same. Quarantine, one, during this pandemic, it's not so much that we're prisoners in a cell behind bars, it's more like being kept in by rays of light we can't see, invisible death and off and on wrinkles of fear, afraid to talk, to embrace our children, friends. Two, unlike the whooping cough quarantine of the 30s with a big red square sign on the front and back door announced to the world shame forbidden by law to leave the house or let anyone in, we understood whooping cough, could see it, smell it in our home, the result. One December morning when I could take no more of being cooped up fever, coughing, vomiting, blood, no more of mother's homemade cures. I escaped out the back door into family legend. In my Dr. Denton's flapping like a scarecrow, barefoot, the air was frigid enough to glue my nostrils shut, wind biting, snow crust night, bloodying my thin, bare shins. And uh, I kind of was disappointed when they stopped calling the coronavirus the corona and started calling it COVID because I like the, the word corona, of course, meaning crown, and I don't know where they got it. But uh, at any rate, this poem, coronavirus, king of many crowns. On the trail up to the mountain, I meet him as I walk beneath a rain shadow of spruces. On a dark morning, I see him coming his small dog slip free from him, drags its makeshift ribbon like a leash. He comes nearer, asks, know anybody with a room to rent? Is there a room for any of us outside on the street? We have a room, but we can't leave it or invite you in. The invisible king haunting his many crowns forbids it. And uh, this turns out today, the 20, we're, we're recording this the 24th of, of June, which uh, happened to be two things that appear in these, these uh, poems. Uh, 24th or the 23rd of June, if I have it right, is uh, St. John's Eve, which is a time in Ireland when uh, people make bonfires and also it's the first swim of the year you go out the river and swim. That will come up in a second poem. But uh, anyway, uh, this poem makes reference to uh, the burning of the Amazon jungle, all the forest fires we had last year here in Oregon. Uh, and it also makes reference to Emma Howell, who died on uh, this day uh, in 20,000, uh, sorry, 2001, if I can say that right. And so she is in this poem, Brazil, the awkward rhyme of breath and grief. I've never been there in real life. I've been to where the Amazon gets its start, where the first drop of rain from banana leaf falls on the tropical forest, uh, sorry, tropical rainforest floor where our great river of grief begins. You've been there, perhaps some part of you is still there, your eyes burning from smoke of the conflagration on the great shoulder of Brazil where you stand by night shore of dreams, your small backpack crammed with our sorrow. 
Along with the great Selva, with its gasping breath and hours, we mourn charred totems standing while we sift ashes or skeletons of creatures past in dangerous status. For we too have become what we too have become. Surely we must grieve for the forest, so must it mourn for us. A wraith of smoke weaves out heartache with universal mourning, every bit as powerful as the sorrow we feel for the forest. We stroll along gray shorelines of reveries, stirring with the burnt stick wisdom you have collected while absent from our lives. Knowledge that can help us with the catastrophes of our planet, help us continue our lives without you, without the mass jungle, our lungs. Without breath, we can't go on. We await your call, your wisdom. Uh, I don't have to say much about this. 100 days. In pitch black Portland, in clogged rivers of streets, a Molotov cocktail goes awry. His creator, his feet aflame like wings on Mercury's heels, runs, flaps his arms like a great bird, unable to achieve flight. His fanning, his fleeing fans, an all-consuming fire until he trips. Someone, not a policeman, rolls him over and over to smother the flames. His protest now sparks ashes. The truth, the whole truth. Claudia Rankin says of memory, it's not the truth, it's not a lie. So where does that leave me? We aren't given permission to select what we remember, have less control over it than, we dream, than what we dream. We poets edit our dreams before we write them. We labor without success to correct our past, suffer the barbs of our critics, we ourselves, but others as well, who insist that it never happened. We hate them for catching us out, making us face the past, a wall of bricks built with only mud for mortar. When we are far from dreams, we pour over every painful sliver stuck beneath our nails that insists, keeps us from sleep, Every detail of the life we've managed, we stumble through and come out on the other side into a less than perfect present. We punch our pillows, not to get more comfortable, but to get a better view. And the other one is kind of a, what the heck is the name of this? Um, it's kind of like that. Oh, this one might give me some trouble. I don't know. It's called memory horror, and uh, it kind of hits the same theme. You can't own my memories. They're like sacred ground. You can't buy them unless the gods agree. You can squat there, rent them. I set the rate, charge as much as I want. You can't edit or correct them. It's not up to you to establish what's true, what's false. My memory, like history, is the biggest liar. But it's poetry, don't forget. If my memories are not the same as yours, tough. I'm not liable for them. I'm the memory whore. You pay the going rate, sue me, or shut the fuck up. I've never used that word in a poem before, I don't think. Anyway, um, going right along uh, in memory, down memory lane, I guess. Uh, uh, but before I, I uh, read the other two or so poems, I want to read this poem because I said earlier, as we started, that today is, is the anniversary of the drowning death of uh, Emma Howell in Brazil in 2001. Swimming through my thoughts. Today on St. John's Eve on the west coast of Ireland, I think of Emma as she swims out from the other shore of this same Atlantic, challenging the sea god Lear. As the sun sets in Brazil, it's the Festa de São João. Here, it's a traditional night for bonfires, for first river swims, time to challenge Buan, goddess of the Boyne, Sinan, 
goddess of the Shannon, but Lear was the greater challenge. Emma swam alongside him until he folded her in his arms, stole her away. This pain, as it turns out. Near Lorca in Spain, in a shadowy night, two tricorns disguised as ravens atop two heads above two visages. Four coals of eyes become the Guardia Civil, suddenly watching our group of six. We sit at a table, our faces lit by a gas lantern, a bottle of rum. These ravens, let's call them, suspect insurrection. These Franco knights are more likely cigarette smuggling. The lantern signals to a boat offshore. If not, they want to know what we're doing here at midnight on the patio of a closed taverna whose owner gave up, left us with a bottle and the lamp hours ago. Two fishermen drinking with us mumble nothing. I vouch for the rest of us, me, my partner, two tourists we met earlier and know nothing about. In their innocence, they don't fear civil guards. We're here to finish this rum, I might say, but instead offer some of it, pass him a last pack of Swiss Marlboros. The guards refuse, wait wordless, hoping for a better offer, but I play dumb all the time, trying to read the silence fishermen's expressions. I, they study their hands, hide behind the story I fabricate. A minute. Okay. Excellent. Oh. Okay. Hummingbird kiss. This is in Panama. At Cerro Azul, I never made the connection between you orchids and beauty. Swimming across the stream, I caught from a mossy low branch one of the flowers that perched there like some exotic tropical bird, a small bird about to fly from the kiss of the hummingbird. I brought it to you, expecting you to put it in your hair. Instead, you looked at it, then at me, as though you would like to dispose of the blossom without me seeing you do it. After all these years, I still think of you orchid in your hair that rainy afternoon in the Darien jungle. I still have the picture. A false memory is only a memory can play you false. For if you smile, it was not the smile of a lover, but that of a young friend waving her hand, not beckoning, but saying goodbye. Thanks, Carlos. Uh, he and I share a, a publisher, Cyberwit in India, and my book from them, Maps, Menus, and Emanations just came out last month. And uh, here's a poem from it that Carlos, the world traveler, this poem was written in Ecuador. Vive mucho donde vivo. It rains a lot where I live. Did the rain wake me or I wake to it? 3.42 a.m., Mindo, Ecuador, this adobe inn with tin awnings. The roads are used to it. A flood of dreams, another time and place, never one without the other, so many casual tendrils. As it rains, it is only given voice by where it falls, even into puddles of itself. The plash on leaves, the thirst of grass, stifling rain, song from speech to music, from faucet to rain. And what of rivers and lakes, motion and accumulation, as my house of 38 years is a pond, the river of my actions stitched, turning on and off, as a river can be segmented, dammed, buried, as some go dry, no longer fitting their clothes on sudden exuberant return. In spite of the rain, because of the rain, not even the rainy season, deliberate monsoon. We can't stay still that long, learning to swim and walk at the same time, bent to not swallow as the gnats and mosquitoes learn to wear rain like wetsuits. From rain to blood, 
from bottle to sweaty hangover, too wet to burn, too hot to not smolder. Rain changes everything at different rates. Rain at 80 degrees, at 40, in a city too dense and paved to absorb it, at the center of the world where everything is moving. Rain that wakes no one up. Invisible rain, paralyzing. This rain isn't rain, my arms say. How the damp ground doesn't recognize it. The day the new rain first appeared, not everywhere at once. Some places haven't tasted it yet. I'm seeing through the clouds to count the layers of sky, of skin, an appetite for something never made. A rain this familiar must be from inside me. Imagination, delirium, or my quantum cortex jumping to new precipitations, wind from where rain had never been. Next up, we have Igor Brezhnev. Igor is a poet and book designer, among his other sins. He has two full-length collections of poetry published by Liquid Gravity Publishing, Dearest Void, and America is a Dry Cookie and Other Love Stories. Eager was also the founder and curator of Word Lights, a weekly poetry reading series in Portland, and founded Lightship Press, a small press focused on poetry. He currently curates a semi-regular poetry interview column, The Poetry Closet, for Nailed Magazine. Igor is reading tonight from Night Sense, which is a series of 363 poems written every night from January 18, 2019 to January 14, 2020, which documents the emotional landscape of being without a home. The poems are unedited as they were written on those nights, kept intact and raw to emphasize the urgency of writing without the luxury of hindsight available to the settled. Three chapbooks of Night Sense have been published with more to come. Here's Igor. Night one, day's impressions into my mind unfold, how there is an empty chair in front of me, and how I like people making small noises, how a young woman writes in a notebook, letters large and rounded settling on lines of the paper intended. I think of rivers. Headlights of oncoming traffic moves past a steady stream, I think, of rivers. The radio room and people filing in from midnight, I think, of rivers. Small shed next to a Thai food cart behind a strip club we're waiting for fried rice, I think, of rivers. I gave up the taste of Russian words, its cult of might, its learn your place, its don't you respect me drink shoved down my throat hot. I think of rivers falling asleep on the couch, dog scent in the blanket that is my pillow, only four hours of sleep ahead, words piling up chaotic. I jot them down, then drift. I think of rivers. Morning. This house doesn't know me. I wonder if it knows what it swallowed whole. It is eight in the morning, and I say goodbye to the house and to the dog. I think of rivers. Night 15. I am again watching people file into the radio room. K. Boo. K. Boom. K. B. O. O. From midnight or a while after. These are my people showing up. Some of this I will say into the mic. Some I will add many nights after. Our lighthouse is now dark, off the air. Dearest lady, like the one from the lake you gave us our swords, our voice, thank you for the place where we could say our truths. It has been two weeks. I survived. Night 55 Night My night 
Sing me a lullaby, an ancient comfort. Am I not yours to sing, made of late highways? Am I not a mad moonbeam, peering through thunderstorms? Are we not tied in a Gordian knot, one that every morning tried to cut? Aren't we listening to the same cats, sinuous movements in their own shade? Do we not worship the same dying lights, arranged in a pattern akin to our bodies? Do I not offer my sacrifice of bright sand, its gravity punctuating every grain's fall? Would we not both yearn for jasmine, sweet pronouncement of your time? Would I not burn in your silk folds, tangled moth, eyes on its wings? Sang I not, you blue nocturnes, iridescent songs of my love? Do I not sit wake for stars, my heart, cold fusion engine? Haven't we startled songbirds, those cries waking day-dwellers? Haven't we closed flowers, gentle, to save for the next twilight parade? Do we not cherish peter-patter of rain, Cloud children, come to sit on our roofs. Aren't we a Danube waltz into the streets, our one, two, three rivers of headlights? Would you not bury me under the elm trees, a little ash there, a little bone here? Would you not cover me in velvet, in bright red nosebleed vertigos, would I not be your neon sign, a letter curve flicker welcoming? Am I not your true magician, locked under your waters? Aren't we beautiful trash, picked before sunrise? Aren't we tall waves, amplitude modulated? Aren't we a cigarette, forgotten aspiration? Isn't our stride matched with the old lady luck, blind? Am I not a mad moonbeam peering through thunderstorms? Am I not yours to sing, made of late highways? Sing me a lullaby an ancient comfort, night, my night, 55. Night 56, to all those who perform. You have climbed the stall mountain of a hard day, did a job of work again, emptied your pockets, ate you're desperate, reached a ledge, swaying, stood there, the sun of you dim, hit your heart, start, you old bastard, then stepped off into free fall of a microphone, you may crash and you know the pain of it, but you still step forward, hoping wind of their breath will pick you up on its current, hoping you get to glide over canyons of your own dark, taking the last bits of you and throwing them out there. Here's my joy. Here are my nights. Soar with me. I'm still burning still taking you with me on a ride one more time.
Night 66 The lamentations of never-taken highways stare us down come night. In stale rooms, we feel the wind on our faces. Freedom lost. We trade the ocean for some quite important task without asking heart. It still beats, but keeps its rhythm with ticking clocks. Tides forgot. We save the kisses for a more convenient time. That hour does not come. Our lips, afterthought, cracked thirst, crave the water of mistakes. Would that we take pause from our predetermined paths, kiss the ocean deep, get in a car, drive farther than our wildest far desires. Night 72. I grew on buckwheat and oats, a mashed potato boy, a sunflower seed boy, a dark rye bread crust boy, a honeycomb boy, a dried fish boy, a crawfish boil boy, a prianik boy, a boy dipped in kvass, a beet boy, a boy for hard work in the fields, a boy for pounding hot metal, a boy to die in some hellhole. See, in Russian, boy is a false friend to your English boy, a word for a battle, a fight, a beating, and the strike of a grandfather clock, and here I am no longer a boy, a memory of a boy, a tired man, landless, buying Thai pineapple fried rice with last dollars, a man with cat asleep on his stomach, a bearded man alone on top of a volcano, remembering childhood by eating sunflower seeds, hoping they sprout yellow-headed, grow tall, and follow the gold sun wherever it rests beyond west. Night 82 Blues of jeans contraband. It will never mean the same thing to those who just had it. Undersunner, yellow and black, raising its head to the local star, black suit and silver monochrome. Thank you, darling Hollywood, for that delightful stereotype. Aren't I a danger? Aren't I just an accent you'd hide from? Aren't I your best exported red dawn? White linen comfort or loud orange shirt. Take me to the beach bum, green and brown like trees. For aren't I a forest cut down for being not the right kind of neck to be from? colors, so many colors. This night is colored white petal rain, colored sunflower, colored tea and wafers, colored alone. Tell me, please, what is the color of having a home? Night 91. Street lights indifferent to blood. Porch lamps say you don't live here. 
tender attics glow someone's comfort. Neon of closed stores, empty promise. Wherever we go, there is a light. Just not for us, just what we bring in our eyes. See, I'm lucky. I'm going somewhere, if not home, but close enough for the being of time. Close enough. This fellow, sprawled by a tea shop, cocooned in sleeping bag, has less luck than I do. And I wonder when my luck will run out, and I wonder of the empty platitudes about how heart is where you live. But does your heart have a shower? Does it come with an outhouse? Can you piss in your most tender heart? Can you wash off the neon from your skin, wash your socks, hang them to dry? Can you ask your sleep to come to your bed, lights off, meet dark nights in the fabled heart card castle? Can you say, we live here, we live in this rented heart? Does your heart come with a little doorbell? Does your heart have a key? How's the rent? Thanks, Igor. While the main poets of the show, I like to have three each time I do a show. Uh, but I always have a few spare minutes for to talk as I'm talking and to uh, read a poem or two by myself, which I already did, or by someone else, which here it comes. This is from James Yeary, his book, Hawaii, Code Pulleys. One thing leads to another. Artificial intelligence predicted the tropin and latch and shuffled it into the blinding gears, making the negative space in the star chart. Pressures coaxing the feel of light coursing, plasmas that butter light as it twines, not endlessly from the macula of N to the I at the end of its rope. Plasmas presenting light for an audience holding light coattail bridal train or starching white collar for obviating fraternal order of light at light's bottom. A dense order of mind presented only in the lifeless areas. The sun is felt heavily like a cream skin the earth lolls about in. The least of the great membrane that keeps the abomination from seeing its teeth directly on our world. Everything that happens within the rim of time is a little bit sad. Like in new photos, a loop stretch long samples of waves. The only joy is a breast of extinction. So Hare Krishna. Everything is built into a single tautological pharmacy, breathing like an emphysmatic Moses from the horns. Doctrines along capillaries, chloride ions swap for acids off of pink love seats. Even blood and darkness is flush with sun stuffs, the randomizer and its alphabet of varials, again fishing for compliments. The idea of a curve is puckered and sun-drunk, and everything the solar wind breathes its life to is within our limit. We'll conquer time within this space. Plasmid infected crumpled horn. Mantra refers to tutu and motion of the solar deity. Sympathy tearing from its atoms. We are sitting on its cusp. Is there more differentiation within this chasm than without it? Program expanding along the folds, delineated by skirts, heft, and torsion. At the end of its run, the words used to describe it are pulled into the noumenal core and are heated, bringing metabolizing energy to the surface substrate we call seen. Tensed by the fact, that is, bolstered by an awareness of it. What could beings double axle pterodactyl still might feathering and paratactical deployments of the ducky modes? Shakti plasm, peopled with chasms. Wet smoke, sputtery branches and new fires, mostly cavernous vacuoles but with door open for the mistake. Can you feel how everything is arranged differently in and out? In runs with heat through every affect in your body to bead coolly down your back. 
the gas giants make their own wind, lift the curtains, baubles dowdy trundling down its hem, squeezing at the legs already never there, blink and the earth is a skeleton, but you'd prefer a storm. Come closer. Gray blonde tracing circles and shaktiplasm giving off these curds called centaurs, im or near immediately cleared by pulverizing forces within out the ballerina's skirt, where life near rises from suggestions rippling outward from the center of our, our activity, the earth, our faith, or its shadow. Shalom. And that's from James Urey. My last featured reader tonight is Allison Cobb. At the college I went to, which required folks to take some courses outside of their major, a popular course for liberal arts majors was called Physics for Poets. And I hope that somewhere there's a course called Poetry for Scientists that would include Allison's work. Allison Cobb, pronoun she, her, is the author of Plastic, an autobiography from Nightboat Books, which she's reading from tonight. Her other books include After We All Died from Masata Press and Born to Chax Press and Greenwood, originally published by Factory School with a new edition in 2018 from Nightboat Books. Allison's work has appeared in Best American Poetry, Denver Quarterly, Colorado Review, and many other journals. She was a finalist for the Oregon Book Award and National Poetry Series, has been a resident artist at Jurassic and Playa, and received fellowships from Oregon Arts Commission, the Regional Arts and Culture Council, and the New York Foundation for the Arts. Allison lives in Portland, Oregon, and here she is. Okay. Well, Dan, thank you for having me on as part of your program. I'm really honored to be here. And I so appreciate all that you do for the literary community in Portland. And I really admire your poems and your writing. Um, so thank you for having me. Um, I'm going to read from this new book, Plastic and Autobiography. Um, it's a prose book. I'm a, I'm a poet and a prose writer. This book is nonfiction. And um, what I was doing with this book, Plastic and Autobiography, was trying to write about this big problem of plastic waste and pollution, but make it from the perspective of, of um, my own life and experiences. So it's written in a number of short sections, and I'll just read from the preface and then one additional section. So the preface has an epigraph by the writer Rebecca Solnit that says, I wanted to trace the lost patterns that came before the world was broken and find the new ones we could make out of the shards. The thing turned up in a corner of the yard just outside the fence. I found it when I went out to take Quincy for a walk. Curved in black, plastic, four feet long, a foot at its widest. I thought at first it was a car bumper. I put it in the grass by the porch. The next morning, it was still there. I sat next to it in the sun and looked closely. It was not the first piece of plastic junk I had sat staring at. For nearly a year, I'd been picking up all the plastic I found on my daily dog walk. I'd been arranging it into patterns, taking photographs. I'd been storing it all up in plastic garbage bags on the back porch. I didn't know exactly why I was doing this. I wanted to understand something. Plastic on the dog walk. Plastic on visits to the beach. Plastic studding the ground everywhere I looked. I gathered it all up. I am the no and the yes. A line from the poet Hannah Sobelman's first book. It has lived with me for years, sometimes whispering through my mind in its old remembered rhythm. In the poem, Sobelman follows the line with a qualifying phrase. She narrows it, makes it domestic. But I want the raw declaration hanging there on the turn of itself. I am the no and the yes. For nearly half my life, I have worked for an environmental group. I spend most of my days in front of a computer screen, taking in a deluge of information about planetary trauma and emergency. 
Most of it floods through me, too vast to grasp. But plastic was a shard that stuck. Plastic I could touch, and it could touch me back. On this day, as I sat beside the car part, I was thinking about the German philosopher Martin Heidegger, his essay called The Thing. His book, Poetry, Language, Thought, had sat on my shelf unopened for more than a decade since graduate school. A few days earlier, on a whim, I picked it up. Heidegger writes that distance disappears and all things come equally close because of technology. In 1949, when he wrote the essay, he meant airplanes, the radio, TV. These inventions bring everything before us in image and sound, ancient Egyptian pyramids, a cat in Japan, glaciers shearing off into Arctic waters. Everything flattens out, a uniform, distanceless, as he calls it. But this does not make anything present. The only way to approach a thing, to bring it near, is by sidling up to it, by thinking around or through what appears obvious. He performs this kind of meditation on the thingness of a clay jug. So I thought of meditating on this car part. It had a smooth surface, shiny, one side was flecked with light splash marks from mud or paint. It formed a complicated shape, wide at one end and tapered at the other, with holes and slats and ridges all along its length. The widest end contained deep score marks, some scratched all the way through the plastic. It was stiff, but still pliant. Without the car body to hold its curved shape, it folded in half like a wing at its narrowest point. The image that came to me was an albatross carcass, bursting with plastic. This was the first shard that stuck, a snippet in a news story about a piece of plastic from World War II found inside a dead albatross chick 60 years later. It stayed in my mind for years, like the no and the yes. I dragged the car part inside the house. Nearly ten years later, it sits beside me, near my desk. I learned this, that the world is not broken, or that it has always been shards, kaleidoscopically interwoven. Not one world, many, threaded through one another, like fungus hyphae through soil. Worlds end. As Catherine Yusuf points out, in a billion black Anthropocenes or none, some worlds have ended over and over, lives consumed and discarded by individuals woven into systems that give them life and death power, like settler colonialism, like capitalism. These are systems built by humans, but they exceed individuals. They extend across generations and geographies, planet-scale forces of destruction. Plastic waste stems from this consume and dispose violence. I learned that waste is not an unintended consequence of a miracle new technology. Waste is inherent in plastic production as it accelerated after World War II. In 1945, days before the U.S. military incinerated two cities with atomic bombs, a DuPont executive looked forward to the end of the war and the surge of buying that would follow as soldiers returned home and bought houses and cars, washing machines, and refrigerators. The job ahead, he told a group of marketing experts, see to it that Americans are never satisfied. Plastic embodies this infinite desire, conjured out of gas and oil, the seemingly endless reservoirs of dead plants and animals underlying earth. Plastic transmutes death into eternal life. The word plastic refers not to any specific object, just the quality of a material that it is capable of taking shape, an endless stream of shapes. Objects formed from plastic ease suffering and save lives, artificial hearts, IV bags, the tubes snaking out of a respirator. Plastic makes cars safer, 
airplanes lighter and delivers drinking water. The single largest use of plastic, though, is for containing other objects. 40% of plastic goes into packaging to be used once and then discarded, driving endless demand for more. Companies work to keep these facts hidden. When the evidence becomes too overwhelming, plastic clogging roadsides, oceans, living bodies, companies shift responsibility onto individuals through things like anti-littering campaigns and ensure that taxpayers and municipalities pay the tab for managing the waste. The lives harmed at every step, human and non-human, drop out of the equation. The same consume and dispose violence threads through me also. It has benefited me my whole life. I grew up the daughter of a nuclear physicist in Los Alamos, the town that built the atomic bombs, which ended some lives in order to save others perceived to have more value. We are woven into the same net, me and bombs, and this car part. For a decade, I followed threads that tie us together through airplanes and sailors, the hydrogen bomb, Pacific Islands, the Nazis, and Heidegger. I followed threads through silence, loss, and grief, through the birth of chemistry and the invention of radar, through patriarchy, empire, and chattel slavery. I followed threads through apologies and their failure, through a pandemic and an uprising, and living lungs struggling to breathe, through old wounds and new ones, hurt reverberating, aching to be remembered. This object, a book and its journeys, this broken down car part, its life, this is my no. I have wanted this car part and its entanglements, often ugly ones and painful, to leave me. I have wanted not to have to face, in my privilege, the terms of its existence. I learned this, there is nowhere to go. The same terms that made this piece of plastic made me, my own body, and each of my breaths. This is also, it must be, my yes. So then I thought I'd just read one more uh, short section from a little later in the book called Fragment. Few tourists visit Camilo, which means swirling currents in Hawaiian. The only way to get to this beach is to drive five miles on a fading dirt track over lava, rock, and sand. We asked Noni Sanford to guide us. She is a local artist I read about in a book on ocean trash. Jen and I traveled to Hawaii in the spring of 2011 as a gift from my family. We expended about 2,500 pounds of planet warming gases to get there. We met my parents, my sister, her husband, and their children on the big island. Jen and I, in our years together, we had not found a word to describe our relationship to outsiders that didn't feel foreign, jarring. We needed no word for one another in the intimacy of our lives together. To represent ourselves to others, I supposed we used partners, not wife, ugh. Besides, marriage for us then was not legal. Partner was probably the word I used when I spoke with Noni Sanford on the phone. I told her Jen and I would meet her and her husband, Ron, beside the road at Waiahino Park, near the island's southernmost point. Noni gave precise orders, rent a four-wheel drive, two-door Jeep, and do not tell the rental company where you plan to go. We drove through early morning mist, ticking off mile markers on the map. At the park, Noni and Ron stood dwarfed by their Unimog, a bright orange truck with huge tires. I learned later that Mercedes first built this vehicle for driving around war-ruined Germany. It roughly stands for Universal Motorized Implement Machine. This is how Noni and Ron get from their home on the smoking flanks of Kilauea to the roadless beach at the tip of Hawaii, youngest island in the chain. 
We approached each other, four strangers. Noni had a gray braid that hung all the way to her waist, high cheekbones, and dark eyes outlined with black liner. Ron was tall and fair, with the sun and windburn look of a person who spends a lot of time outdoors. Noni opened her arms to me. I'm sick, I warned, leaning away. I woke up with a sore throat. She rolled her eyes, pulled me in. It took an hour to go the five miles, Noni at the wheel of our green jeep, moving at a crawl behind Ron, tires grinding over boulders, across ditches and drop-offs. I sat crammed in the back with two scientists who were in Hawaii for the fifth International Marine Debris Conference, who had also contacted Noni to guide them to Camilo. We grasped the seats, trying not to fall into each other's laps when the jeep tilted sideways on a rock or tipped vertically into a pit. But we made it. Noni nicknamed the truck Greeny Guy. We all cheered for it. This is what it looks like at Camilo. Black lava spills right to the seething water. Native Naupaka shrubs and low heliotropes spread green across thin stretches of sandy soil. Mauna Loa, Earth's largest volcano, looms dark and purple. It erupted in 1868 and spewed the molten rock that streams across this beach. We picked our way over broken flows, a misstep and jagged edges cut into skin. Ron clocked the wind with his handheld meter, 40 miles an hour. We couldn't hear one another speak unless we stood quite close. The wind tore the sound from our mouths and flung it down the beach. It threw stinging sand and salt at our skin. Hats, even tied, wouldn't stay on. Sunglasses and camera lenses fogged with salt spray. The sun beat down. Noni led us forward toward the water. My feet began to slip. Beneath us was no longer only the wicked-looking lava. The tides had tossed up a whole cosmos. Tree trunks, coconut shells, coral, car tires, barrels, and plastic. Bright-colored plastic of every shape and size shifted and slid beneath our feet. In high places, I get vertigo. Instinct pulls me to my hands and knees as close to the ground as possible. A similar thing happened at Camilo. Wind, sun, rock, water. I squatted and looked straight down at the plastic ground. I dug into it with my fingers, burrowing toward what? Solid earth? I didn't know what else to do. The watcher inside me took over and I began to make a list of all the plastic I could identify. Styrofoam, large chunks like rocks strewn across the beach. Plastic wedge heels for platform shoes, oddly common. I saw four of them. Fishing floats, all shapes and sizes, with characters in Japanese and Korean. A Febreze bottle eliminates odor and freshens the air, spring plus renewal scent. An Epson printer cartridge, barely hanging together. Motorcycle helmet purple lining and crust with barnacles, sitting next to a brown hard hat. So many plastic bottles they would be impossible to list. Some looked new, like they just came from the store, most weathered, many with Japanese characters. Bottle caps so common they faded into backdrop. Brown toy dog with blue collar, missing its tail. Blue, black, and white striped basketball. Motor oil bottle, cigarette pack, brand new tennis shoe another motorcycle helmet, hiking boot, foam sheet with flip-flop shape cut out, white jug with Japanese characters in English, antisepsis, remove bacilli, the blanche water, two pink combs adorned with flowers, black combs, several, three umbrella handles, Noni collects these, perhaps a dozen disposable lighters, three golf balls, a blob that Noni identified as the remains of a super ball, one jack, globs of a whitish waxy substance, partly incinerated, twisted hunks, a, chuck, a chunk of tiny reflective yellow beads Ron said are melted and used for road markings, two round chewing gum containers with Japanese characters. In English, one said xylocube, lime, mint, the other fruit scum. Plastic structure for the heel of a shoe which formed an A, so I kept it brown plastic shell Ron identified as half an octopus trap, scrap of astroturf. 
Noni had disappeared down the beach. Ron seemed worried. We pulled our eyes away from the junk. It was kaleidoscopic, mesmerizing, and gathered around him in a little wind-blown clot. He said he was going to take the truck and go look, but then she appeared, first her head coming over a rise, and then the rest of her, the bag she made out of an old t-shirt slung over her shoulder. She showed us her find, a pristine white plastic shard that read, God. All right, so that's uh, Alison Cobb. Uh, the main reader after, or before her, was Igor Brezhnev, and before him was Carlos Reyes. Uh, strong thanks for all these people and their writing for all the poets out there. Here it is, middle of July. Hopefully things are getting back to normal or the new normal, or we're at least out and about doing poetry readings. I might soon get back into the KBU studios. Who knows? Uh, thanks to KBU. Thanks to people who support KBU. Thanks to all those listening. Thanks to my wonderful engineer, Patrick Bocard, my other co-host, Barbara Lamorticella, and Walt Curtis. So good night. Don't sweat too much and have more poetry, please. What do we mean when we talk about personality? What is your personality? It is the way you get along with other people around you and with your changing environment. You want certain things from other people. The way to go about getting those things reveals your personality. Your personality is the way you affect other people. Think about that. The way you affect other people.